I want to share some honest insights with you this morning. Um, and even before that, I'm going to share a little thing that might seem silly, and yet uh, it's just a part of who I am. And so I had the, I had the blessing this last week of um, having a long-awaited surgery in my nose and sinuses. And uh, I'm very thankful for that. However, there's a little side effect of that. I have all sorts of stitches in my nostrils and in my sinuses. And if you can imagine a string inside your nose, tickling and wiggling, um, I can see some of your eyes watering already. That's exactly what it feels like. And so uh, as a byproduct of that is I have been doing a lot of sneezing. And so if suddenly I burst into a fit of sneezing, this is going to be a warning to Rick, our sound man, He's going to have his finger quick on that mute button. If he sees me doing this, then go quick on the mute. And the rest of you, if you hear five, six, seven, eight, nine sneezes in a row, don't be alarmed. Uh, it's just, uh, it's temporary. So I'm very thankful that, that that got to happen this week. Maybe before we go any further, uh, let's, let's come to the Lord again in prayer. Almighty God, the great I am, Yahweh. It is uh, precious to say your name out loud. Yahweh, Yeshua, Almighty Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's because of you that we are here today. It's because of you that we have life. It's your mercy and your grace and your love for us that sustains us. And so, Lord, this morning, I praise you so much for this body of brothers and sisters. I praise you for the, um, the life we get to live walking alongside you. I thank you so much for desiring to meet with us, for being a God who desires relationship with us. I thank you so much for establishing your church this, um, this living building, this living body, the uh, branches on your vine, Lord. We thank you so much that we can gather as brothers and sisters and uh, worship you and praise your name. And even though we may be in smaller pockets in these days, Lord, uh, your name is not diminished in any way. And so we want to worship your name in its fullness, Lord, here today. I thank you for already being in our midst. I thank you for continuing to be in our midst, Lord. We, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to be our guide and teacher this morning. Lord, may the uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart uh, be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please open my mouth to words you would have shared this morning and close my mouth to words you would not. We commit this time to you, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'd like to share a few, um, a few bits of honesty with you here this morning. And I feel like this feels like a small group of body, uh, it almost feels like a, uh, a very casual morning, and I love that because I want to share some honest things. And I hope that by the time the morning's over, you guys don't think less of me, that you will not look down on me. Uh, and yet I want to share some, share some honest things from my heart. 
And the first thing I want to share is, um, brace yourself for it. I have been discouraged sometimes. And I know that uh, now that our pastor and elders know that, that I get discouraged sometimes. This may be my last chance I get to preach in front of you guys. But I think it's honest that I share that with you. There have been times in my life that I get discouraged. And, uh, and I have, in the last while, there was a, a period where I was walking through what I would call some, some great discouragement. And I know now being through it, I know exactly, I can see uh, where my focus was. I took my focus off of God and I started placing it on the circumstances in my life. I... Um, I started seeing uh, the things around us in this world that, uh, that got my attention and they shouldn't have. And in an effort to try to combat this discouragement while I was going through it, I, I kept repeating verses to myself like uh, Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. We have a, a nice big plaque on our living room wall that has Joshua 1.9. Uh, where the Lord very clearly says, do not, oh, have I not commanded you? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I've tried counting my blessings while I was going through that discouragement, and, and, I, and I forced myself into prayer at times, and, uh, and yet that discouragement continued. And I know from past experience that when I have been discouraged, I know all it takes is one word from the Lord in the middle of that discouragement. I know all it takes is one taste. And I, and I totally uh, believe and agree with the psalmist who wrote in, in Psalm 34, uh, I know uh, that the Lord speaks. I have tasted and seen that he is good. And I know he speaks to his children. I know his Holy Spirit is alive and at work and, and wants to share uh, words of encouragement and words of discipline. And, and, he, and he shares verses with us from his, from his written word. And he shares thoughts. And in this discouragement, I know that all it would take is one word from the Lord. And sometimes that can jar me out of that discouraging rut. And yet there are times... Knowing that the Lord speaks, there are times where I come to him and I ask, Lord, just, you know the situation I'm in. You know the path that there is before me. Do you have a word for me? Just one word, Lord. And often he does. And yet the honest thing I want to share with you is there have been times in my life where it has felt silent in my prayers. And maybe no one can uh, relate to that here. But there have been times where I know all it would take is one word, one picture, one thought from the Lord. And yet, and I come with eager anticipation, Lord, is there something, is there a word you have for me? And yet, there's silence. And that's, that's this discouraging road and it almost feels like a, a spiral sometimes because I know that the Lord can take me out of that discouragement and I know He can refocus my eyes on where they should be focused. And yet, um, 
And yet sometimes I stay in that discouragement. I realize that my eyes are focused on the things of this world and I, and I realize I can see things in this world that aren't fair and I can see there are wrongs being committed in this world and I can see people I care about going through hard things that, that I know that um, they could be relieved from. I know there's people hurting around me. I see very plain and very flagrant uh, sin in the world being flaunted. And I can see things that uh, it's just wrong in this world. I can see all the things that are wrong. And I honestly want to be part of God's army that he will send out to do his work. And I honestly want, I'm waiting for those marching orders or for that command and that instruction I'm waiting for God to speak so I can partner with His will and go and make a difference in this world. And yet sometimes there's silence. And that's where I was in a few weeks back. And almost out of frustration, uh, in one prayer time, I remember calling out to the Lord, Lord, I'm here. I want to serve you. I want to be obedient. But it was almost like a frustrated call. God, what do you want from me? I'm, I'm ready. Just tell me what you want from me. Almost instantly, uh, there was a word from the Lord. And he shared with me one verse that I want to unpack together with you guys today. Because that, that one word that he, he brought me, or that verse that he brought me, it was both encouraging and rebuking at the same time. It was both motivating as well as humbling at the same time. And that's God. He's perfect in his wisdom. He's the good father. He's the good shepherd. He's perfect in all of his ways. He knew exactly what words to give me that would speak and cut right to my heart. And those words I want to share with you today. What I'm sharing with you today is very much... uh, Like I said, some open sharing that the Lord has been teaching me and hopefully someone here uh, today can learn from what the Lord is teaching me as well. What he shared with me was Micah 6.8. And he said, He has showed you, O man, what is good. So I was asking, Lord, what do you want from me? And it's almost like instantly God said, Well, Ed, he has showed you already what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. Oh, if you see the yellow words, go ahead and read together with me. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In that one moment, God revealed to me what he would like to see in me. There in my discouraged state, waiting for direction, waiting for guidance, waiting for motivation... He revealed such basic truths um, that, I have, that I have learned to fall back on, to fall on. And, and like I said, it's not always silent in my prayer times. I have had many words of, of wisdom, words of encouragement, answers to prayer, um, what I would even consider prophetic words that, that the Lord has given to me. And yet... In these times of silence, he is actually giving me an answer. I've already showed you some of the things of what you need to do. 
Just go and do them. And I think in that situation, what I often do is, is I do what um, I think I should. When the Lord gives me a word from Scripture, then I go into the Bible and I start looking at it. And so I, I did exactly that. I read through the book of Micah. And I thought, what does this prophet who lived over 2,700 years ago, what would he possibly have for me today in 2021 in this time of, of uh, COVID and this time of discouragement and this time of what, how, how are the two even relatable? And as I began to re- read through the book of Micah, I realized that Micah lived in a very similar nation and time as we are right now. Uh, he lived in a time where there was individuals who abused power. Uh, he lived in a time where there was great family disunity. He lived in a time where there was stealing and defrauding and cheating. He lived in a time where leaders hated what was right, where religious leaders distorted the truth. He lived in a time of corruption and bribery. He lived in a system that gave those with money all of the advantages and the poor were robbed. He lived in a land full of disobedient hearts. And I started asking myself, is any of that relatable today? That picture began to look very similar to what we're living in today. This is the kind of nation that Micah was sent by the Lord to speak into. He was, spent, he was sent to go speak to Israel and to Jerusalem. He was sent in a time where people were steeped in sin, where injustice and corruption ran wild. He was sent to a people who thought that there was nothing wrong with their religion. In fact, on the Sabbath days, they were still offering sacrifices and they were still pouring out their offerings. Almost as if to say that on Sunday, it's, it's good to do the, the right things, the religious things, and yet the rest of the week was very different. This is the, the nation that Micah was sent to. He's in the middle of the sad nation, and that's where God gives him this word of hope to share with his people. And though, that word of hope is what I want to pack together with you guys here today. The people were looking for a way to continue in their sins. And almost as if a... um, The book of Micah makes it sound like they're very willing to pay their offerings and pay their sacrifices because they know that if they just pay that, they can continue in the sin that's going on over here. If they just do enough good things, maybe it'll offset the bad things that they have going on over here. Isn't that very much our human nature? We think, okay, um, I've done something wrong, so maybe I have to do something right to make it up or to pay for it. We think that our doing uh, can actually save us. We can actually earn our way back into God's good graces. And then unfortunately, the Lord has truth, like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where he says, For as by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves... It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Oh, 
right when we thought that we could earn our way back into God's favor. Then he says, no, it's not about works. And yet this is the situation that Micah and his nation that he was in were in. They thought that maybe their good works could somehow, uh, uh, or their sacrifices that, that, that could earn forgiveness for all the other things that they still wanted to be part of their life, all that wrong in their life. And so when we see that, that phrase, uh, he has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? That right away touches that same nerve. Oh, require. That means that there's a cost. So as long as I know what the price tag is, I can find a way of paying it, and maybe I can uh, earn God's favor. Because I know he says require, and so that means that there must be a price tag. When that word require might be better translated um, into what uh, God would like to see in us. It's almost like um, a parent who would, they don't require their kids to be a certain way, but the parent would love to see certain attitudes and certain um, behaviors in their kids. And that's really what that, what that word is. It's not a price tag. It's not something that we can check, a box that we can check, but it's actually something that God wants to see at work in us. So what is it that God wants to see at work in us? What is that attitude or that lifestyle that God wants to see at work in us? The first place I want to go is to act justly. To act justly. Justice is the ability to determine what's right and wrong. The very fact that something is just, that means that there is a right and a wrong to it. And to act justly takes it one step further. It's not just knowing it, but it's doing it. But before we can even go there, we have to find out what is right and wrong. Is there such a thing as right and wrong? There's a deceptive teaching in the world um, these days that will tell us that right and wrong are very subjective terms. And in case you're not quite sure the difference between subjective and objective, you're going to learn something new here today. Subjective means it's based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. If I say, oh, this water is the best water in the world, that is a very subjective statement. Because what makes it the best? That's my opinion saying, oh, I love this because it's so refreshing to me. I, I just had a sip of it. Oh, it is like, mmm. That is the best water. There is no actual um, facts. Well, objective, if I was to say that objectively, uh, if something is objective, it's not influenced by personal feelings or opinions in considering and representing facts. It's not dependent on other things. It's actual based on facts. So if this water was proven that somehow it is like the purest water in the world, or, or it has some sort of feature that gives extra refreshing above all the other water in the world, or it's the perfect temperature. Those are all things that can be measured, all facts that can be measured, and then it could be an objective truth. But when I just say, oh, this is the best water in the world, that is totally subjective. That's my opinion saying that this water is the best. 
Well, this idea of right and wrong in the world, what is sin and what is not, uh, many will tell us that that is so subjective. It's based on what you feel is right or wrong. If it feels right, it must be right. Or some people say, well, right and wrong is totally subjective <clears throat> because it's based on uh, what the law of the land is. If the, if the law in that nation says that it's okay, it must be okay, right? It must be right. Well, actually, no. It's not. Uh, right and wrong, I'm going to tell you guys, right and wrong is not subjective. It's actually objective. Just because we feel that something is right or feel something is wrong doesn't make it right and wrong. The very fact that makes it right or wrong is whether or not it is in unity with God's moral character. God is the ruler that we measure right and wrong against. If it lines up with God's character, it is right. If it contradicts or goes against God's moral character, it's wrong. Regardless of what the laws and the nations say, regardless of what your group of people that you hang out with say, regardless of what your feelings tell you, if it contradicts God's moral character, it's wrong. He is the measuring rod that will determine what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is sin, what is right, what is wrong in this world. So how do we find out what God's moral character is? We search the scriptures and we look at Jesus. When we do those two things, here's what we find. There's many things that God loves, and this is only going to be a short list. God loves things like honesty. He loves things like integrity. He loves compassion. He loves children who honor their parents. He loves a cheerful giver. He loves faith. He loves humility. He loves obedient hearts. These are all things that line up with God's character, and so they are good. Those are all good things. But He also reveals to us in Scripture things that He hates. And Proverbs chapter 6 has a list of some things that he hates. He lists in scriptures. God hates arrogant or haughty eyes. He hates a lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates a heart that devises wicked schemes. He hates feet that are quick to rush into evil. He hates a false witness who pours out lies. He hates a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And that list keeps going on. We see in Exodus 11, uh, sorry, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Uh, God hates it when we worship other gods, especially idols, over Him, the one true God. He hates it when we misuse His name in vain. He hates it when we abuse the Sabbath. He hates it when we murder each other, when we commit adultery, when we steal, when we covet. By studying the scriptures, especially studying the life of Jesus, we can get a very good and clear picture of what God's moral character looks like. We see the things that line up with God's character 
as good and we see things that go against God's character as wrong. Right and wrong are actually objective things. They're very clear and precise. They don't change based on how we feel or whether we like it or not. They don't change because God doesn't change. Right will always be right, and wrong will always be wrong. And so when he tells us to act justly, he's, he's actually pointing us to the measuring rod, saying, remember what is right and remember what is wrong. But then what does James 1.22 say? Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. So not only is it important to know what is just and what is unjust, but we have to go one step further and now act justly. Do you guys find it easy to do what is right and hard to not do what is wrong? I sometimes am in that boat. I know what is right, and yet sometimes it's hard to do the things that are right. I want to do what is right, and I want to stop doing the things that are wrong, and yet that's hard. I need the Holy Spirit at work in me. I need obedience to Him, an obedient heart to Him to make that change. In the, uh, in the 1960s, there was an idea that was brought forward um, by people who study human behavior. And they were watching uh, certain situations where uh, there would be a group of people around either an emergency or somebody in desperate need of something or a, a great wrong happening. And that group of people uh, would stand by and do nothing. They actually called it the bystander effect. And these people who study human behavior, they started looking at this and they started looking at where there was big public groups and it seemed like the bigger the group was, the less likely individuals in that group were to go and do what is right. People would kind of assume, oh, the next guy's going to step in. I'm not going to get involved over there. And, uh, and they watch this and it actually plays out over and over and over again. And that's part of our human nature that we need to fight against. Because the bystander effect will, will happen if we just rely on who we are as people. The bystander effect happens where, where we assume, oh, the next guy is going to step in. I'm just going to hide back here in the shadows and hopefully nobody notices me. Because I don't want to get involved. I don't want to stand out. And yet they also found that in the bystander effect, if there was one individual who would step forward and say, hey, stop that. Others in that group very quickly came behind that individual and said, yeah, stop that. Or if one individual would get out of their car and go and try to help uh, that person in that freezing water, others would very quickly come out. But that first person needed to step forward. It's weird how we think as a, as a people, isn't it? As followers of Christ, when we see injustice, are we quick to step forward and help? Young people, teenagers, if there's someone in your class who's having a hard time with one of his classmates, are we quick to step forward and say, hey, listen, stop that. 
don't talk to him that way. Or don't, stop bugging her, guys. Or are we tempted to fade into the group as a bystander? As adults, do we see wrongs happening in this world and we just, it's easier, far easier to let somebody else take care of it. Or I know that that family over there needs help, but I'm going to let somebody else take care of it because whatever, I'm busy, I have all these excuses. Or maybe we know that there's a situation happening in our country that, that it's actually important for us to speak to our elected officials and say, listen, there's, there's this atrocity happening. What can we do as a group to, to correct this? And are we willing to step forward? And in a, a gentle and careful and yet bold standing for justice way, are we willing to step forward and say, Lord, I want to see your justice done in this world. James 4.17 reminds us, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Oh, I wish that verse wasn't in there. Life would be so much easier if we just had to worry on, about not doing the bad things, but this verse very clearly tells us that if there is good that we should be doing in this world and yet we don't do it, oh, now suddenly that's sin. We, sin of omission. Sin of, of not acting. See, I believe that Jesus set us an example that our faith is a very active faith. We cannot be believers that wait on the sidelines. We cannot be believers who fade into the shadows. But we are called to act justly. The second thing that, <clears throat> that I've been learning from this word uh, from Micah the prophet is to love mercy. And I've often uh, looked at mercy and I think, oh, well, mercy is holding back something um, bad from someone who may deserve it. That was always my default definition of mercy. And it actually goes quite a bit further than that when we start looking at what the Hebrew word uh, used here for mercy is. It's the word hesed. And it, it actually is translated in many different ways in the Bible. It's used as mercy. It's used as uh, compassion. It's um, used... It's uh, translated into goodness and kindness... Those are all words that mean the same thing. So mercy, goodness, kindness, compassion. When the Lord revealed that verse to me, He challenged me, Ed, do you love this? Do you love being kind and good and merciful and compassionate to people around you? Because these are all very central parts of God's character. He loves lavishing goodness and kindness, especially where it's not deserved. In Matthew 9, 9-13, we see a little picture of, of our Lord Jesus, and, and it goes like this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. 
tax collectors and sinners. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. What this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come, sorry, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We see here an example that Jesus gives, and we see it over and over and over in his uh, time here on earth, in his ministry, that he loves to lavish kindness and goodness and mercy on us, people who don't deserve it. We see it with the Samaritan woman at the, at the well. Jesus lavishes kindness and goodness and mercy on her. We see it with the ten lepers. We see it with the woman caught in adultery. We see it with the thief on the cross. People, these are all people over and over again that Jesus encountered who we might be quick to judge as undeserving. Yet Jesus lavished goodness, kindness, and mercy on them. So then we have to ask the question, do we pour out mercy, kindness, and goodness to others? Or do we treat those things like they're in a little leather coin purse and we have those strings drawn really tightly and, yeah, I know I'm supposed to give mercy to that person. I'll just very begrudgingly give it to them. Or I know I'm supposed to be kind. I'll just give a little bit of kindness. Or do we lavish it on people? I, I keep using that word lavish because I just love it. It feels like, a, like slathering something on, like a, a heavy portion. And I think that's the model that Jesus gave us with mercy and kindness and goodness. See, when I asked the Lord the question, well, I think, I think I love mercy. Like, I love to do good things for people. I love to show mercy. And he was reminding me, just yesterday as I was going over these notes, he was reminding me... Um, of this point. Do, and, he, and then I asked him, well, I think, I think I love mercy. And then just then, one of the neighbor kids, this was earlier in the morning, when many of our household were still asleep, one of the neighbor kids came and knocked on our door because they love to play with our kids. And in that moment when I was, I just had this thought, well, yeah, I, th- I think I love to show mercy. And I heard that knock and instantly like that, I was like, who's knocking on the door? And I, and I turned like instantly like that. Oh, why is he being so loud? And I knew exactly which, which neighbor kid it was. And I quickly came to the door. And in that moment, the Lord, totally like a gentle father, he touched me and he said, well, I think you could love mercy a bit more. And I could recognize that just like that. Oh, yeah, clearly I don't love mercy as much as I should, as much as he does. And I love the Lord's timing. He's so good. Isn't it good when uh, you get those timely reminders that human wisdom could never teach us, and yet the Lord, in His wisdom, He just gives a little, a little nugget, and, uh, and they are precious. That will last with me a long time. Do we forgive generously? Are we slow to offend and quick to forgive instead of the other way around? Well, I know I can grow in that area. And how do we grow in something? 
How do we get better at something? How do we learn to love it? Is by practicing it. So who can you lavish mercy and kindness and goodness on today? Not if, or is there someone. I know there's people around us that we could lavish those things on. Who are they? And if the Lord gives you pictures of faces or names of who we should be lavishing kindness and goodness and mercy on today, please be obedient and practice it today. The third thing I want to look at is um, to walk with our God. We're going to save that word humbly for, for the end, but to walk with our God. And in this, uh, what I call the Ed Giesbrecht application from earlier on, in, in my time of discouragement, uh, it was very clear the Lord was telling me to continue to walk with Him. This walking with God, um, it's a daily asking, seeking, and knocking. It's, it's finding out about who God is. And as I, as I looked into that a bit more, I think I stumbled across my new favorite Greek word. And that Greek word is meno. It's not M-E-N-N-O, as in Menno Simons or Mennonites, but it's M-E-N-O with a, a line on top of the O. Meno. It said that it's, it's pronounced exactly the same way, but meno is that word um, that we read often translated into words like remain or abide or to continue alongside, to walk with, to endure, to remain in, to stay in. I love that word meno. I want to look at John chapter 15. Uh, because here Jesus actually has a lot to say. And, and everywhere where you see a yellow word, uh, that is the Greek word meno. I'm going to hammer this word home, meno, yet. So I'm going to invite you to, re- you can read the word remain, but, um, but in the back of your mind I want you to be remembering, oh, that's the Greek word meno, meno, meno. Okay. John 15, 1 to 11 says this, I am the true vine... And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Next slide, please. Uh, That's one too far. Uh, The one, I am the vine. Where did I leave one? Oh, no, there we go. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you... Remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain remain in my love. Uh, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This passage that Jesus gives us about remaining, he clearly wants us to meno. He wants us to continue alongside him. He wants us to remain in him, to endure with him, to abide in him. So how do we do that? How do we meno? We spend time with him. We read his word. We listen to his voice. We embrace and engage with him daily. We welcome his Holy Spirit into our lives. I love what Galatians 5.25 says. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That is like walking with God. And I love the, um, the, this, this term, keeping in step with the Spirit, or living by the Spirit. Uh, I love what Charles Stanley, how he has described that. Um, he says, to walk in the Spirit is to live moment by moment in dependency upon Him, sensitive to His voice and in obedience to Him. I love that. There's going to be more days, I expect, where I won't hear God speak. I'm so thankful for the days that he does. But there will be times when it will seem silent. And when it seems silent, it's very important that we never stop walking with God. It's in those days, maybe, that we need to practice persevering. So that we continue, that we remain, that we abide, that we walk alongside. It's in those days that we need to meno. God is asking us to continue to walk with our God. And the the fourth thing I want to unpack from this verse is the word humbly. Humbly. You have heard that preached many times from this pulpit because it's in Scripture over and over and over. A humble heart is at the core of God's character. It's something He loves. Humility is the key. And so rather than uh, re-preaching what is often preached here, I'm just going to share a few Scriptures with you that will hopefully hammer home the idea that God is looking for humble hearts to serve him. We'll start in James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray 
and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Luke 4, 7, sorry, 14, 7 to 11. When he noticed how they get, and, and Jesus shares a little picture here of how important humility is in a very practical setting. When he, he noticed how the guests picked their places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to say to you, Give this person your seat. How awkward would that be? Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he will say to you, Friend, Move up to a better place. How precious would that be? Then you will be honored in the presence of all the guests. For all, who, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Philippians 2, 3-8 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Psalm 25, 8 and 9 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. And the scriptures go on and on and on. We could sit here for another hour looking at all the scriptures that speak to how important a humble heart, a humble attitude is to God. Everything we do should be partnered together with a humble attitude. A proud heart causes us to focus on ourselves. A humble heart puts the focus on God and then others. And that's what God is looking for in his children. Now, to summarize all these things that the Lord's been showing me, and hopefully he's shown some of you a few things out of this yet today too, but he's opened my eyes to, uh, when I took a step back of the things that he was kind of leading me in, not only did this passage out of Micah jar me out of my rut of discouragement, it helped me focus back on God. 
And I realized something else that God was actually showing me. He, he's, he showed me something through these ideas of acting justly, of loving mercy, of having this humble attitude and humble heart. All these things focus on the character of God or what we might label as godly character. He was telling me, Ed Giesbrecht, these things are important. Continue to grow in godly character. But he also taught me to meno in Christ, to remain in Christ. What some of us might refer to as abiding in Christ. I know some of these terms are familiar to some, to some of us. When I took a step back after this lesson with the Lord, he very clearly was telling me, Ed, there's a few things that if you, if you ever have a hard time hearing my voice or if it feels like I'm silent, then all you've got to do, he's shown you already what you've got to do. Continue to abide in Christ and continue to grow in godly character. And if anybody here would like to know a little bit more about abiding in Christ or growing in godly character, talk to our pastor, talk to me, talk to our elders that we have here. I feel like that is a direction that God is setting our church, our body into, and there are good rewards that come out of that. That is what the Christian walk is all about. I think we'll leave it there. Let's, uh, let's unite our hearts in prayer one more time. Lord, it is, uh, it is precious how you can speak into our situations. You can use words from a prophet that lived on earth uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and yet you can apply that perfectly into our lives. Lord, please forgive me for losing sight of you, for taking my eyes off of you and putting them around me, just, just like Peter did when he was walking on water, Lord. I feel, Lord, that... Um, I know, Lord, I know that you speak and I know that you're not, uh, that you're not silent, that you're engaging with us. And, and often there's things in my life that are keeping me from hearing you, Lord. So please forgive me for those things. Lord, forgive me for times where I have been discouraged based on the circumstances I'm in or the, or the uh, situation of the world around me, Lord. I know that I'm just passing through here, and I know all these things in my head, and yet sometimes my weak earthly heart here gets distracted, Lord. And I'm sorry for those things. I thank you for understanding uh, my weakness in that. And I thank you for lavishing uh, mercy and forgiveness and kindness and goodness on us, Lord. I thank you for leading us in a way that we can walk alongside you and meno with you, Lord. Please continue to reveal to our hearts what that means of actually being able to remain in you, Lord, to be those branches attached to your vine, bearing fruit, Lord. These promises and these, uh, these teachings, Lord's, Lord, have been so precious to me. I just ask that your word would continue on in our hearts and our minds, that your spirit would use those words to encourage us today, Lord. We give you all the praise and honor and glory, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.